Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Sarah Richardson, CEO and co-founder of Microbuyer, which is domesticating novel bacteria and using biology to produce chemicals that can supplant petrochemical production methods. Only a small portion of a barrel of oil is responsible for its petrochemical outputs. Most of a barrel is what you'd expect, fuel that's converted to gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, etc. But that small portion that's valuable for petrochemical feedstocks is really valuable. By some estimates, it makes up to a quarter or more of the value of a barrel of oil. So if we want to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels to slow down climate change, one of the ways to do that is to lessen the value of a barrel of oil. Microbiar does this by looking to the natural world. There are microbes and bacteria all around us, eating things, producing things, living in all sorts of environments, from the highest of mountains to the deepest of sea vents. There may be a trillion or more bacterial species out there, with 99.99% of them undiscovered by humans. And yet when it comes to domesticating microbes, the technology world has turned almost exclusively to yeast and E. coli. We typically think of microbes as something to which you feed sugar and it outputs alcohol. That's fermentation, and it's how we make sourdough bread, beer, kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, etc. And yet on this show, we've covered other input-output combinations, such as zero-acre farms, which uses bacteria to produce cooking oils. So what combinations of bacteria, feed, and environment can produce valuable chemicals? And once this is known, can these bacteria be genetically modified to do this even more efficiently? These are the things that Microbiar is focused on. When I first started asking people about Sarah, I had more than one person tell me that she was among the smartest people they'd ever met. I even had someone tell me that they thought she'd win a Nobel Prize someday. We're thrilled to be investors in Microbiar at MCJ, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation Sarah and I have. I learned an absolute ton and hope you do too. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So you have been living and breathing this space for quite some time with a really deep academic focus. And now you're building the what we all hope to be a monster business in this space. I would love for you to walk us through your journey from, if I remember correctly, dropping out of medical school, pseudo dropping out of a PhD <laughs> program. And, no. No, am I getting all that wrong? Okay. So there we go. I'm going to hand the story to you now, please. <laughs> It is a weird story, and I have attempted to quit <laughs> things. So I started working in molecular biology in high school. I was lucky enough to hear about an opportunity where the National Institutes of Health would add a rider grant onto an existing grant held by a professor, where if they already had an NIH grant, they would get extra money to bring on an underrepresented minority student. So I wrote to all these professors in the area. I grew up in Baltimore, and only one of them answered. This is a pattern for high school students trying to get into a research lab. I had one that I took. He told me he wrote to 100 professors. I was not a professor, but he, he, wrote, to, he wrote to the laboratory I was in. 
So this professor wrote back and said, well, the study you want to join involves killing mice. And I was like, a dove, I do that all the time. By the way, my partner Jason and I have a, he has a real issue with my real dislike for gophers. So, you know, I'm, I, <laughs> lo- you know, love all animals except the gophers in my backyard. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't heard of any medical studies that require, you know, the use of all right, gophers. Sorry about that. So I can't even give you that comfort for their torture. <laughs> No, he did let me into the mouse lab and he did let me, I learned PCR when I was still, you know, a senior in high school. It was a really special experience. Now I couldn't afford to go to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine for my my undergraduate work. I went to University of Maryland, go state schools, fear the turtle. I'm a Kansas Jayhawk. I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like a state school education at all. Big props. When it was time for me to apply to graduate schools, that uh, professor, his name is Jeff Buka. He's now at New York University. He told me, don't come to Hopkins. You should go someplace to get more diversity in your experience. However, if you come, we're working on a project where we completely resynthesize a yeast genome from scratch. and We could really use your help. So I did apply. I did get into the Johns Hopkins, the School of Medicine for Graduate School. The department I joined was human genetics and molecular biology, which is where the medical school part comes in. As part of that curriculum, I was required to take two years of medical school. I didn't drop out. That was all I had. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Got it. And it was simultaneously with the medical school. So it was, you know, a hassle. (laughs) But it was interesting because now I know everything go wrong with the human body and not how to fix it. That's sadly, the state of our health system in general is sick care, not health care. So, you know, it sounds like a pattern. Yeah, it was wild to be in there with the medical students. They're extremely dedicated. They worked extremely hard. Then they partied extremely hard, way harder than the PhD students felt to party. And as a PhD student, you know, my I had a stipend. So I was actually, you know, more comfortable, I think, than the medical students. But right there in classes with them, they would ask things like, if you could get an MD, why are you getting a PhD? Like, I'm being paid, yo. (laughs) It's fine. Don't worry about me. I used to wear a shirt that said not a doctor on it. And on the back, it had like a cross through a surgeon. And this was trolling them a bit. I have to, you know, in my later mature years, admit that I was being a wicked (laughs) troll. So that was actually my email address was not a doctor at Johns Hopkins Medical Institute's. It's pretty funny. All right. Well, I'm glad we've started here. <laughs> they were at pains to remind me sometimes. They're like, well, you can't call yourself a doctor, which is fine because I don't need to stand on that. Although I will point out that originally medical doctors were not called doctors. It was professors and PhDs were called doctors and the medical doctors needed it more. So we let them have it. It's fine. You know, for all the, the medical doctors listening, we love you and your services are incredibly critical to the survival of humans. So thank you for, for all that you do. But you need to remember that you are body mechanics when it <laughs> comes right down to it. So, have a little humility. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. What happened next was I was offered a fellowship from the Department of Energy. So a weird mix. I was the first one ever to get offered it at a school of medicine. And it was called the Department of Energy Computational Science Graduate Fellowship. And I'm honored to still be involved with that community. But what they strive to do is to train cross-disciplinary experts. So as someone who was coming from a biology background, I was required to also take computer science and applied mathematics classes. But in those graduate departments, in those colleges. So 
I was not allowed to claim bioinformatics as computer science. And the goal was to train me to understand the languages of other disciplines. If you had come in as a computer scientist, you'd have to take some other discipline in applied math, et cetera, et cetera. But because I was coming in as a biology student and biologists are traditionally allowed to, we have to take some of everything, chemistry, physics, math, but we're allowed to take slightly less rigorous courses in those because we're, we're biologists and you'll never, whatever. They required that I take like two years of classes. I, so I think I took more classes at Johns Hopkins than any graduate student in their history. <laughs> Probably, I, I definitely think in my program, I, I had took the most. So I had to take, you know, machine learning, applied mathematics, things like statistics, linear algebra, differential equations, databases, algorithms, data structures, all stuff that actually formalized my ability to program, made me a much better programmer. But I am not a good programmer. You do not want me in your code. It's like they knew you were going to build a company at the intersection of biology and machine learning someday. <laughs> well, I think what they were hoping was that I would join the workforce and be able to bridge some of the gaps. We have silos sometimes in technology where someone might start a company that needs to draw on multiple disciplines, but because who they know and who they're comfortable with, they may recruit people who are closer to them that they understand their skills and try to hire the expertise in later. So the Department of Energy made me take parallel computing classes so that I could elevate to say supercomputing. So I can understand what it takes to do data processing at scale because that's part of their mission is to enable supercomputing in the United States. So yeah, I learned a lot and I still get involved in that community sometimes where I get called in maybe to consult on how you integrate cancer research with machine learning because finding people who can at least be conversant. My goal is, or my what I was trained to do is not to be an expert in any of these fields, aside from potentially my home love molecular biology. And even then people who have focused more on it are going to be better than me at almost everything. But I speak the languages or I'm conversant in the languages of many fields, and that allows me to build connections. You are undoubtedly much more of an expert and probably much more of a generalist as well than I am in either of those areas. So, you know, it's definitely a lot more training than most of us get. <laughs> I have to know my constraints. I have to know my constraints. And what I use these skills for is to ensure that I can hire good talent, that I can tell what they know, they know more than me, and they're good communicators, and then make sure that I help them build the bridge to the other disciplines they need to interface with, and ensure that those bridges are equitable, respectful, and as peers. So at our company, although we are a microbiology company, the microbiologists, molecular biologists do not run the show. They respect the skills and the contributions of the chemists. And we call them CODIs. Anyone who touches a computer <laughs> is a CODI. And anyone who touches bacteria and chemicals are a Benchy. Our business development team, they're the busies. And I guess that makes me the bossy. But all of us are critical components of the ecosystem and the success of Microbiome. So that's what I was trained to do. So you, you had this incredible amount of cross-disciplinary introduction at DOE. And then you went and decided to go back to school. At Johns Hopkins. This is all at Johns Hopkins, all of that training. And I was working on a graduate project at the same time, which was working on the, all the computational infrastructure needed to reliably synthesize a yeast genome. And that's really where I sort of started to doubt that I, I started to think I'm building a tool to help engineer 
a yeast genome, and I don't understand why we're working in that organism. And your PhD is actually in synthetic biology, is that right? Your dissertation? Human genetics and molecular biology is what it says on my PhD, but the work was, yes, it would be what you would call synthetic biology. Yeah. And I was finding myself, I didn't dig it. I didn't like it. I didn't dig it. Why not? Unpack that. It was yeast, the organism that I was making all the tools for, everyone around me was working in, and also the broader community. Whenever I traveled and talked to other people who were enthusiastic about this field, they were using one of two or three organisms. I think we could stretch to say five. I've made sourdough bread once, and it did involve yeast from the air, which was kind of cool. What's the negative side of yeast? Well, it's just one organism in a very wide world of organisms. And so it has its niche. The one we use or the one that is used in synthetic biology is derived from the same strains that make bread, not your wild caught yeast and bacteria mix, but the ones that we use to make alcohol and the ones that we use to make bread. And so it is really, really good. It's been selected for converting sugar into ethanol. That's what it's great at. And we learned to genetically engineer it. It was one of the very first organisms we sequenced. Basically, yeast, you feed sugar, you get alcohol out. Like that's the the basic equation, right? Or carbon dioxide if you're trying to make bread. But yes, this is the basic equation. It is one organism of gazillions on the planet, but one we kind of domesticated. We said, we will feed you sugar. You will make ethanol. We will make sure that you pass your genes on. We will protect you. That also means you can ditch a lot of traits that you don't need in containment that you might need in the wild. In the wild, you have to protect yourself from predators, from disease. You have to be very robust in case nutrients go away. But when you come into a fermenter with me, you don't have to do any of that. So the yeast that we're working with that we got genetic access to, it's kind of scoped very tightly to what it it was specialized to do. And the challenge for synthetic biologists is to then ask it to do many, many things that evolutionarily it has no context for. And that's what the work I was doing in my PhD was facilitating. Now, I like building tools. I like building bridges. But I was becoming disillusioned that the tools I was building were not really going to move the needle in terms of the number of organisms that we could access or that they were necessary for that. So that is where the pseudo quitting the PhD came in. From a software perspective, it's like, hey, we've ended up creating this JavaScript framework that's really great at doing X, Y, or Z. And now we're asking it to go be a database layer. And that's just not what it's meant to do. Yeah. And you will find libraries that will do that. And you will look through the Git hubs and the PyPy and go, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. What are you doing with that? So it might be possible in some cases, but the costs incurred, the efficiency. Yeah, that's not a terrible analogy, although I will caution you. Many, many analogies for computer science and electrical engineering have been unproductively applied to synthetic biology, which is part of what I'm trying to shift. So that's part of what I was becoming. You know, I, you can go back and find some of the talks I gave in grad school and I will be using the same analogies, but I was becoming really, really disillusioned with them, which is where you got the impression that I quit my PhD. I did walk into uh, my advisor's office and say, I'm out. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. That sounds like you quit your PhD, (laughs) but then they gave it to you, right? 
He gave me the PSU. <laughs> yes. So that's one bit of advice to graduate students. I think my husband is the one who articulated it to me. He says, your PhD is over. When you look back at all that you had done and said, I should have done it differently. Don't do it different. Just quit at that point. You demand the PhD and move on, move on. And similarly for postdocs, for a graduate student getting a PhD, it's like, oh, I need to wait until they award me the PhD. For a postdoc, you quit when you get a job. Start looking for a job. <laughs> you don't owe them four years, six years. You quit when you can move on. And that's your decision, not your advisor's decision. So a little bit of graduate school advice. Rule one, don't do it. Don't go to grad school. But two, if you do, quit on time. It prepared you well, obviously, for <laughs> what you're doing. But, you know, you obviously decided when it was time for you to, to hang it up. And I think what I'd love to learn about next is I've heard you talk a lot about the real difference between biology and chemistry when it comes to approaching biological organisms and how there are fallacies to bringing a chemistry-based approach to trying to understand and manipulate and grow organisms to do things we need them to do. So maybe unpack that a little bit for me in case I'm, I'm not fully articulating that correctly. I really started to realize that at the next step when I did go to the Department of Energy to do about four years of postdoctoral studies and realized that the lab I had just come from was led by someone whose classical training was in biochemistry and they embraced biology very well. Then I went to two laboratories that were headed by, one was someone who had a biology degree, but the other was someone who had a chemical degree. And I realized that the vast majority, I'm talking above 90% of people in the entire biosciences division had PhDs in chemistry. So that caused me to start of start to look at how I was seeing things versus how they were seeing things. And in the field of synthetic biology, some of the biggest proponents and the loudest people pushing analogies computer scientists, physicists, and chemists who are coming to the field with a lot of enthusiasm and taking some of the traditions of biology and then sort of not approaching them with the biological philosophy. So yes. What you do in chemistry and in physics is you edit things, right? You're editing an atom in physics, for example. Is that a poor statement? No. What you have is a lot more granular control over your experimental conditions. So every single time you introduce this solvent to that reagent, you're going to get a chemical reaction very dependently. And here's the reason why in biology, the number one rule the immutable sort of thermodynamic equivalent of, you know, you can't make matter without you know, all of the things the physicists say about object emotion, sense state emotion. The number one rule of biology is you make imperfect copies of yourself. The system is in motion at all times and mutation is part of the game. It's not a bug. It is a feature. There's no way to avoid it, and it means massive complications to any analogy or to a practitioner who is used to things being absolutely perfectly repeatable within very small tolerances. Like, I'm not every time you do a chemical reaction, you get 100% yield, but you know you're going to be getting, like, plus or minus 0.05% yield. So can right? you, is it harder to apply the scientific method to biology, like the notion of control, test, experiment, learn... No, I don't believe so. I believe that it's hard to compare it to physics and chemistry and computer science if you are coming from that framework. So something I ran into as someone who is getting a lot of multidisciplinary training, I'd go to multidisciplinary conferences. People would ask me, what are you doing? And I'd say biology and they'd say, oh, that's cute. 
or biology is just a lot of memorization. And I think there was something about how biology is taught to everyone that can make people who are more inclined towards chemistry and math unhappy the same way that the way I was taught math made me unhappy. <laughs> so it's not like I liked the beginning levels of biology any better. But yes, when they asked me to memorize stuff, it was, I didn't like it. I wasn't like, oh, all the monkey genuses. That was not what was happening. I viewed it as the price I had to pay to get into the cellular biology and the molecular biology. But if you don't accept that organisms make imperfect copies of themselves, you will try to control them instead of riding along with them and applying selection. So every time you apply selection to a set of cells, you are going to see a response. If you don't know what you're selecting for, that doesn't mean you're not selecting. So the cells are making imperfect copies and responding to their environment. So it is reproducible in a sense that if you take the same stock of original cells and apply selection, you are going to get something out. The way they get there might be different. If you compare the genetics of the two stocks of cells, you're not going to see exactly the same genetic, which kind of might confound <laughs> some chemists who are taking the DNA as code. There are so many ways for biology to get to the same thing. That doesn't make it not reproducible or not, you know, cyclable and iterable. It just means that the ranges of biology need to be allowed for. So that is something that will they'll stumble on. And there's a big field today, you know, multi-billion dollar field of biotech. You know, we've seen big advances just in most recently in all of our lives with COVID vaccine in terms of advances in biotech. How do you see the current industry leaders of biotech and how they're approaching things versus where you see the opportunity? And we haven't even talked about what Microbiome does yet, but where you see the opportunity with Microbiome. Well, I also want to differentiate biotechnology. It's a really broad umbrella. And so there's a couple, there's lots of different technologies in there. When you hear biotechnology, you might also think of medical devices, things like pacemakers and insulin pumps. That's biotechnology. That's not what we're talking about. And then there's the spectrum of things you just referenced, like pharmaceuticals and vaccines. That's also not what I talk about mostly. There's a different set of business rules, different business models, different margins, different amounts of money running around in biomedical tech. So my specialty and the things I will complain about or brag about are largely for what I would call industrial biotechnology. And that is the leveraging of biology to get at things like chemicals that are not for human ingestion. It is to get at chemicals, to do agriculture, to do mining, to do the kinds of things that are not gonna cure somebody, but might improve carbon and the climate challenge to improve carbon sequestration. And the very nature of chemical being the desired output would lead me to believe most approaches to these problems today are chemical approaches, not biological approaches. Is that correct? This is the one where we felt that we could have the biggest impact because, yes, it used to be that almost all of our chemicals came from biomass. So we would make plastics from biomass. We used to make nylon from oats. We use oats to make furfural, and we turn the furfural into a dipic acid, nylon. When we decided that petroleum was a matter of national security was when we started getting shellacked in the Spanish-American War by oil-fired ships opposed to coal-fired ships. That's when we first set aside massive petroleum reserves for the Navy. And when you start building an infrastructure that lets you tap petroleum, it becomes very inexpensive to tap it for chemicals. So 3 to 10%, usually around 3%, I think is the number you see, of your 
average barrel of oil goes to become chemicals. That's 33% of the profit of the barrel. It is a really impactful thing that now some of our medicines, even all these chemicals, everything that goes into your iPhone, that's not, you know, metal, all of these plastics and monomers and polymers are coming from petroleum. And so, yes, this is the big impact I think biotechnology can have. And when I say biotechnology, I am scoping it to replacing petroleum here. But there's other things I mentioned, mining, there's things like uh, agriculture and helping plants protect themselves from pests, helping them fix nitrogen is a very bacterial thing to do. So these are all things that we can do to help fight the climate emergency with biotechnology that people tend to go for the biomedical, which is great and fine, but I am not qualified to speak on it. So we're, this is awesome because we're 20 minutes in and we've just started talking about climate, which is obviously the focus of our whole world here at MCJ. One of us had to bring it up. Yeah. How did you take all this background and then say, oh, I want to focus on, on climate? Like, where did that come from for you? A lot of my cohort went into, remember, I was in a human genetics program at a school of medicine. A lot of my cohort studied cancer or human genetic diseases. And when I looked at the amount of work in front of them, I wussed out. To study a human disease might be to wait for 30 years to see enough patients come through where you can compare their genomes and locate the lesions. To study cancer is to compete in a very, very crowded and overfunded field where there's a lot of emotional a lot of emotional work to do in the fear and the impact cancer has on people. I also have a pretty mean joke about how the NIH will never run out of money because cancer is one of the only dependable scourge of senators. So studying cancer has a lot of money behind it. And what I found was there was a lot of noise and I was not sure where I could put my feet on a foundation that I could trust to have an impact. So DOE funding also helped because NIH funds biomedical stuff and some basic research that could go either way, but their mission is biomedical. The Department of Energy's investment in biology is by definition industrial for manufacturing and for agriculture. And so there's another space to use my skills that I had not been aware of were it not for that fellowship. So fascinating. I mean, similar background and not at all to you, but similar experience in that I when I was first starting to, you know, I've been working with startups for a long time and started to realize I really enjoyed working with startups that were focused on some kind of, you know, larger scale impact to the world. And I actually started with health myself as well and quickly realized for me in the world I do, like the things the startups needed help with was introduction to health systems. And like that was not the background I had at all. Whereas, you know, a lot of climate startups it was more that kind of generalist interdisciplinary sort of ability to work across lots of disciplines that was helpful and thus caused me to lean in as well. So it, it's interesting to hear you. You came at that from a different direction, but it seems like kind of reached a, a similar kind of conclusion on climate being a more immediately urgent and be a broader, frankly, a broader problem to try to solve. I think that we can impact many, 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 many lives simultaneously with some of the solutions everyone working in the climate space, not just biologists, can have. But I don't want to disrespect the body mechanics and the people working in biomedical technology. They are also working with complex systems. I think that they are working with a tide that is going for them. 
And when you are fighting climate change, you are fighting a status quo that is a bit resistant to change unless you can really show them how they can profit from it. And that is not the case in biomedicine. People believe they will always find a market for a cure. So with all that background in history and kind of the rationale for focusing on displacing petrochemicals, which is kind of what I hear, heard you say is, is your big focus right now, how do you define microbiome? Like, what is your quick sort of description of encapsulating all the stuff that you just kind of went through into, hey, here's what our business is doing? Cost competitive commodity chemicals from crap. Love it. Lots of C's. We domesticate bacteria. So this kind of goes back to the difference of opinion from some of the synthetic biologists to where microbiome is. Remember I talked about yeast. So one of the analogies is that yeast is a chassis and DNA is a programming language. And therefore you can design DNA, which is a chemical. And the computer scientists like it because it's a code and you can put it into the yeast and the yeast will run this program and produce a chemical for you. And microbiome says, where did you steal that DNA? Yeast does not want to do that. And also yeast runs on sugar, which is a cost that can preclude you from economically competing with the status quo of how much chemicals cost. So the crap part comes in when we say, well, what eats stuff that's not sugar? Bacteria and other fungi, if it rots, some microbe is eating it. We tend to elide over the impact of microbes on our greenhouse gas emissions. We say, I farted. We don't say, I fed my bacteria fiber (laughs) and it made gas. So there's a lot of ways to elide over what microbes are doing for climate change or for you know emissions or what we could do to leverage them to not emit. So if it rots, it is potentially a feedstock. And then you ask, well, what bacteria are on it or what bacteria can leverage it? And why aren't we using them industrially? And that's microbiome's key spot in the ecosystem is don't use yeast. You picked a good target, a good chemical target. You had good motivation for going after that. Let us help you get it into an organism or Let's get you into an organism that already fits into the niche that you need it to specialize in. Maybe it already makes that chemical. Maybe it makes a precursor that was easily separable and you can drop it into your existing chemical pipelines. But let's not force a yeast. It's like making a goat try to catch mice because you're friendly with a goat and you're scared of cats. Like No cat has ever been trained or something. One, it's not true. But two, forcing the goat genetically to get smaller, to grow claws instead of hooves, to rewire its metabolism so it eats meat instead of grass. This is a massive challenge you're setting yourself up for. And I think it's a challenge that you can see in synthetic biology has not really been terribly successful. So we want to tell these companies, we sit upstream of you, your goals are good, your customer base, you know, ready and willing, let us help you drop the costs and improve the titers by getting you into an organism that will work with you instead of against you. It sounds like what I'm hearing you say is you learn a bunch of different organisms, how they may grow, how you may be able to cultivate them, what problems are good at solving, what problems they're not good at solving, what their byproducts might be, what their feedstocks might be. And then you can provide those to One missing step. So yes, we know more about more bacteria than anybody else does in a single place. There will be labs that know more than us about a single bacteria and labs that know more about one thing and many bacteria, but we just have breadth. So 
that is not enough. Other people can find bacteria that are good at something, but they're not necessarily ready for industrial scale up because they're missing something and they're wild and people don't know enough about them. So if just finding them or knowing about them was enough, we would not have this problem. The missing step is genetic modification. So this has been something that was what that, I was going to ask. So there, that's oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we do. So we do that assessment. We say, what are you good at? What do you like to eat? You know, how fast do you grow? All of these things that you would like to know about a bacteria. And then we can also assess how long are you going to take to genetically engineer? Because that's been something people bounce off of. There's a contingent that believe that some bacteria are not growable. There's a contingent that believe that a bunch of them will never be or are very hard to transform. That is to put DNA in that changes their behavior or influences their behavior. And microbiome just sort of discarded those assumptions and said, no, 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 no. We can grow anything and we can genetically engineer whatever we need to genetically engineer. So when we find a match, a feedstock, a product, an industry, or when our customers come to us and say, what have you got? Or we have something that is missing genetic modification, or we have, you know, they come at different stages in this pipeline. And we say, okay, what is the minimum amount of genetic engineering that is needed to make it effective and efficient and worthy of scale up and cost competitive with existing processes? And also because we are thinking about domestication, how do we also work to make it domesticated, more containable, more specialized, and more robust in fermentation? And that, that's the missing part to just know the bacteria, deploy the bacteria, is all the ones that were able to do this right out of the soil, you know, they came out of the soil in the 60s, and it's been very difficult to bring new ones online. And so if, if you're great at having a, a library of all these different potential use cases, inputs, feedstocks, and you're great at actually building environments to grow and cultivate these bacteria, are you also doing the editing as asked or required by a customer, or are you handing them and saying, hey, you're the editors, you go do this? Oh, no, no, no. No, um, other shops have struggled to edit arbitrary bacteria. That is why we are here. That is why they have defaulted frequently to yeast or E. coli or Bacillus subtilis. That is what they have available as infrastructure. That is what they use. That's not really their fault. They don't have the right bioreactors and things set up to actually support the growth of these different organisms. You can't just hand them over to them. It's not the bioreactors. So imagine you are, and you have this experience, you are a fresh-faced, idealistic biologist or chemist. You recognize that there's a chemical need for something, and you understand that there's a biological way to get there, that there are enzymes exist in the ecosystem that you could put together and get to this chemical. So then you go, okay, where are those enzymes? And they might be in a bacteria that there is no literature about how to grow it, how to transform it. It's just, oh, we observe this bacteria. It has this enzyme. So you, as someone trying to start a company or trying to start a research program, you want that enzyme, but you're not really mandated or capitalized to grow it, to understand it, or to build a toolkit. These are all skills you might not have, especially as a chemist or as someone who comes out of, you know, depending on your biology program. But what you do know is that you have E. coli, you have yeast, and these have very public toolkits. High school students have used them to make edits, and you can get in there and you can quickly test an enzyme sequence. So that's really the bottleneck is when you put that enzyme into the E. coli, it's got a 50% shot of just killing the E. coli. 
Most of the genes you transfer around, you're just in the wrong context. And the organism goes, I'd really rather die than do that. I mean, it's back to the software analogy. It's much easier for Amazon to acquire a company that's built on AWS because they don't have to do any integration, sure. right? They know how, or, to, they know how it works. if we are going to use software analogies, <laughs> it is like looking at a computer that's running Ubuntu and going, I just, I can't. So let me copy that binary over to Apple, not to my laptop or even worse to Windows because Maybe you got a chance since Apple's built on FreeBSD, macOS is built, <laughs> but that's not a good success strategy. What you really need to do is go learn Ubuntu and tweak the binary there. Otherwise, what you're looking at is a campaign of refactoring it for Windows. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. And so these customers of yours, they will then hire you to actually deliver the end product chemical at that point? Or are they... What are they expecting from you? And maybe let's let's move the conversation then into, like, what does your commercial business look like? Part of our hypothesis was that we don't have time as a planet or as a startup company that specializes in what we specialize in, to raise capital, to put steel in the ground, to make chemicals when there are chemical companies that are already there with the right steel. So we also select for bacteria that will fit into existing infrastructure, which is many, many, many more than some would guess. Our model is to sit upstream of people who can use biology and provide that liquidity, that flexibility that allows them to leverage biology that has not been leverageable before. But we do not produce the chemicals. We allow them to produce the chemicals cost competitively using biology instead of petrochemicals. So our model is to, when, and the people who approach us are people who are genuinely looking for biological techniques or who already have one in place, but it's not yet cost competitive. And so if you think of yourself as a petroleum company or a chemical company that uses petroleum, you are feeling pressure to go green, but you cannot justify going green if it's going to cost more money to produce. You just, we have proven as a species, we will not pay for a green premium. And until subsidization hits the levels that it got for petroleum, <laughs> just, it's very difficult to justify that. So they're looking the levels that petroleum still enjoys, by the way. That's not in past tense. 
Yeah. And I'm not so much an expert on how all that works. I'm trying to get there, but I have to rely on other experts to explain some of that stuff to me. What I do know from a baby business sense is that it's also not enough to say, oh, this green process will cost just as much. The final product will cost just as much. You can sell it for just as much because now you're facing the inertia of what new equipment or new process is not enough to just come in at the same price. You actually have to beat it. You have to motivate that if I change now, I will be able to make it for a bigger margin later. And then you will really shift your processes, your downstream separation, everything. So the unfair playing field that biotechnology finds itself on is our first products to really start catalyzing a shift in funds, a shift in subsidies, is we have to beat an unfair playing field. And so from a business model perspective, I assume these are either they're licensing tech from you or you're doing some kind of joint development agreement with them. There's heavy, I assume, agreement on who owns the IP that's being developed here one way or the other that I don't know if you have a firm point of view on that for microbiome or if that depends on the relationship with the customer you're working with. We're biologists, so we're flexible. We're like, what works for this ecosystem? So the deal that we strike with our customers looks a lot like something that works for their ecosystem. So there's licensing, there's joint development agreements, there's even a possibility for spin-outs or subsidiaries where we can have an impact on biomedicine too. As an example, we want to stay focused on climate, but if someone comes to us and they say, we really need this bacteria, for a novel antibiotic or to be able to tweak a bioactive compound that's coming out, but just needs a little bit of enzymatic tweaking to really be the right target. We could conceivably just spin out an IP portfolio of editable bacteria in that space and just have them go really specialize in the regulation and the bring to market that that needs. By not taking individual products to market ourselves, but partnering with people who are motivated, who can, who already have QAQC, who have customers, who understand the space, we are able to have an impact on multiple fields that can impact climate or impact human health. And so our model is come to us with your problem. We'll tell you what it's going to take to cause movement in that area. And then we will jointly figure out how we can both profit from that. And so to some extent, then the ultimate business success of microbiome is going to depend on which of these chemical outputs and customers who are using them end up hitting mass scale in terms of further downstream adoption, which is a little out of your control. So as a CEO, how do you manage sort of the uncertainty of that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, we could boil it down to two ways to do it, right? We could pick one and really focus on the whole thing and do it ourselves or take it to a bigger scale before we hand it off as a licensing agreement to somebody else who can scale it. And that's also a risky bet because what if you pick wrong and also you're small and inexperienced? So what if you don't know what you don't know? Bringing in a partner early who knows a lot more about the volatility, about the things that you literally don't know you don't know, can help you de-risk it. They already have interests. They already have hidden information from us about what they care about, what is feasible. And so bringing in partners early, giving them you know that sense that this is the thing that's very different, and microbiome is very different, that can shift the metrics. Bringing them in allows us to de-risk what we couldn't do if we set ourselves up as potential competitors to them. Also, I borrowed a trick from the VC playbook, which is to have a portfolio. 
by having multiple conversations going on that leverage a back end, our automation pipeline that works the same regardless of what the target we're looking at is, I can have my foot in multiple places that might work, especially when you're targeting something as difficult, as slow as commodity chemicals. We want to also have things that move a little faster, like some specialty chemicals or people who are further along in the development of their process, whether it's chemicals or not, and we can come in and help accelerate that even. So yeah, the portfolio play. Some VCs I talk to, <laughs> like, no, if you think you have a molecule, you need to build the whole thing. I said, but you have a portfolio. You didn't go, oh, wow, this market is the one market and this target is one target. And then you invest in 10 companies that are just doing that. That's too risky. So why would I do that? And some of them didn't like that answer. Well, you're doing, you're doing okay with it so far. So from a portfolio construction perspective, then, what can you share about some of the diversified bets you're making right now? Like, feel free to go as nerdy and wonky as you like. What are some of the chemical compounds you're trying to solve for right now? Well, when we were a baby co, you know, like three of us, we went for and we started curating a list of things that others had failed at because that's the conceit, right? We have a different technology that changes the cost models of what you can get. So there were some that, you know, you can just read the trade magazines, you can read the press releases, you can read the other startups that rose and fell with certain targets in mind. And the biggest one that I thought we could do with the small team was succinic acid. And the VCs rolled their eyes at me when I, you know, went pitching like, oh, okay, and here's the one we've been demonstrating is succinic acid. Succinic acid is not a massive market compared to commodity chemicals. Downstream, it gets a little better. But there had been so much interest in it. Companies that, you know, just had to withdraw from the space or actually went bankrupt trying it. Succinic acid can be used for lycra. So I think that's the non-trade name. There's one of them is Bandex or lycra. I think it's lycra. And so it can also be used for, you find it, the derivatives of it, right? It's upstream of the kinds of plastics you find in automotives and in the bathroom. It's what else? Uh, lots of solvents. So when you get down to commodity chemicals, some of the immediate derivatives are not so exciting. <laughs> but succinic acid was such a an attractive target. It can also be used to make biodegradable plastics and to make films that protect our food and things like that. And, and it's, it's, it's currently petro, it's made... It's produced today? Oh, yeah. It's petro-produced from butane. Butane becomes maleic anhydride and the maleic anhydride can be tapped to make succinic acid. If I recall correctly, I am not a chemist. So the chemists in the audience may be going, see, see, you need us. And I do. I absolutely do. But yeah, the petro process is still the dominant process in the field because the bioprocesses, they tended to come out using E. coli or yeast. And that wasn't a terrible try because every cell on the planet that uses oxygen, that respires oxygen, makes succinic acid. And so you might think, okay, well, this is not one where they specialize. So I can get any organism to just make a lot of it. And we actually went and found or resurrected interest in a bacteria that had been discovered. We don't tend to have to discover bacteria. You shouldn't think of us as going out into the wilds, hacking down the jungle and bringing back samples. One, that's not ethical. And two, it's not necessary. What had happened was people said, oh, look at this bacteria. It produces stellar amounts of succinic acid, but oh, well, it's too expensive to ferment and we can't genetically engineer it. So E. coli. 
And so that was our first target where we said, look, we can genetically edit that bacteria. And we did. So we can grow it. We can make it cost effective to ferment. And we did. And so this is an example of something that we're happy to license out because succinic acid is a commodity chemical. You'd have to make kilotons of it to actually start having a dent. And that's, again, not what we're capitalized, deployed, or specializing in. So that's an example of one where, where you all kind of came across a problem and now you're trying to find a buyer for it or find a solution. I assume you also have examples where large companies are, are kind of starting to come to you and saying like, hey, we have this problem. Does that exist as well? Yeah, we have three or four categories of people who come to us looking for assistance. One is very upstream and they are people who have streams of organic wastes that would otherwise rot. And they're looking to valorize them to be able to upcycle them and claim revenue from them rather than paying to dispose of them. And presumably also avoiding methane emissions from whatever the thing is too. If you're doing wastewater processing, if you're doing composting, if you're just throwing it away in a landfill and it's organic, yes, it is rotting to methane or carbon dioxide. And if your processing facility does not capture that natural gas, that the methane, it is just a greenhouse gas emission. So being able to take things like wastewater, take things like any byproducts from dairy production, from any kind of food production where you know there's carbon in there, that is something you know that we seek samples of this. So if any listeners have samples of <laughs> non-household wastes, industrial, and I don't always call them waste streams, I call them streams of organics, that they do not have another use for. So they come to us and they are not necessarily going to be able to produce something from them. We would match make, but that also adds to our database of what low cost, it's not gonna be zero cost, but what low cost feedstocks can we offer to compete with sugar as a feedstock? The next class of people who approach us are people who are working in yeast or E. coli and they are hitting a metric wall. And so they come to us and they may say, what should we have done? Or what can you offer us instead to achieve our goal? And so the third class is people who are already working in the right organism. They found it, they've scaled it a bit, they have gotten downstream, but there are metrics they would like to improve. Maybe byproduct production, maybe robustness. So they have metrics that they want to improve that they can't improve without genetic engineering, and they are not kitted for generating novel genetic engineering. Some of the successful companies that labeled themselves synthetic biology in this space did go through that process. Microbiome, it's easier for us to do because we leverage automation. We're very skilled at it. But companies that spend a long time specializing in one bacteria, they get there. So it sounds like you're you're hitting customer needs on both the input and output side where people well, are bringing... There's one more class of customer. They don't know anything about bacteria potentially, and they don't know anything about feedstock. They have a chemical. They're like, can you get this chemical? And when we approach customers or, you know, they say, what else can you do? That's a dangerous question for an entrepreneur to answer. Well, what can you do? And you say, well, what do you want me to do? It's when you have, you know, broad opportunities. Those people and your audience, I'd like to ask, what have you given up on? What did you think was a really good idea, but you just could, the tech wasn't there yet? What chemicals did you get excited about? You know, they have markets and you know, it could have a climate impact but you haven't been able to do it yet. That's what you bring to microbiome. We'll be honest, this is not a bacterial problem. Or yeah, we could do it, but it's gonna take two years. Or yes, we can do it, it'll take six months. That's what we ask that fourth class of customer. What did you give up on? Because if we have a new tech, we have a new way to do it, let's do this. 
let me try to spit back the four classes you said. One, the first was, hey, we, we experiment with stuff where we know there's a market for it and we might have a solution. The, the succinic acid was, you know, your example there. Yeah. On spec projects inside where we see things because of our automation. Yes. Two was on the input side, there is a waste stream someone needs to do something with, and they're looking at either finding a profit center for or just reducing the cost of removing it. And, you know, you're working with them to figure out, hey, can we actually turn this waste that you have into a profit center or just reduce the cost of removing the waste on your end? Provide an incentive to help build an infrastructure to get biomass moved around instead of rotting. And this hopefully will extend up to grass clippings and municipal compost. Just where can we leverage this stuff instead of just rotting it? Yep. Third is on the demand side, which is companies that already have a business demand to build a chemical substance and they don't have a methodology to do it. So they, they've they like signed a deal or like are working on something to you know solve a business problem. They tend to have a prototype. They've gotten so far. They have reason to believe it's doable biologically. Yes. And then we come in to help them realize it. And then fourth, I've now forgotten. <laughs> what was the fourth, the fourth one? one are people who want chemicals may not have leveraged biology before or who have been shopping for biology, but have not found the ones that really shift the cost margin. So this would be your big chemical companies or your little chemical companies. So my question on four is, do you have a sense of what's driving four today? Is it, we think that biology can do this more cheaply than petrochemical or is it, oh, we're getting hammered on ESG. Our stock price is getting, you know, messed up. We, We have net zero commitments and we have to find an alternative to petrochemicals. I think it's a combination of everything. And also, you know, I think a bunch of people, no matter what their day job is, we are faced with a climate emergency. And the struggle is we have to work within the constraints of the system. Unfortunately, nobody can wave a dictator wand and get it to fix. So responsible people are trying in every industry to shift so in as stockholders. <laughs> they are so trying. Like all of us are trying to do what we can in our own little ways. And like, it's just going to take a million little cuts at it, right? Yes. And hopefully that million little cuts moves the needle because what's discouraging is some of the ironclad rules of our society and capitalism, which is it has to make someone a profit. Either free money has to come in, flow into the system from somewhere, right? We call those subsidies (laughs) where, you know, nothing moves without some external energy. It's so we... Free money has to appear from somewhere or we have to work together to find a way to make it economical. We have to change the slope so that we're always rolling downhill towards money. So I think there is ESG pressure, but I think that it is fighting that sense of, but also you must profit. If the ESG pressure was also, and I am not an expert yet, I'm still a baby co, I am learning a lot. But if that ESG pressure also said, we are willing to not take dividends, while you research this, maybe lose money on it, or while you have that period of time where you're switching over, we want you to not just invest in it, but we are willing to take a slowdown in profits until ESG says that as well and gets the rest of the shareholders who don't care about ESG as much to agree to it. We have to find special solutions that actually thread that needle. And so that's my uneducated take on it. While also still like not letting society fall off a cliff because they're losing valuable products that they need to continue to whatever, have safety in an automobile, for example. 
We need the molecules from chemicals. We need the molecules that we're getting from petroleum right now. Yes, it's life-saving. I cannot ask anyone, particularly people who have nowhere near as much privilege as me, to go without to save the planet. That is also a constraint on the system. So I think these companies know all of that, see all of that, are acting within the constraints they have and have tried before. Let me be really clear. They're not just waking up now because the molecule I told you about, succinic acid, these were big companies with investments and joint development agreements and joint ventures from massive chemical companies that use petroleum all day to try this. It's not that they haven't tried. It's that biotechnology has not been able to deliver on some of it at a price point that made it possible. And that's what Microbuyer is trying to do. One more try. Let's try it this way. And, you know, speaking of incentives, you are building a company. You are building a for-profit company. You're trying to attract talent to your company with the notion that, yes, you're doing great things for the world, but you're also going to make a profit and people will be able to feed their families and all of that stuff, too. So maybe share a little bit about what are the kinds of the kinds of people that are coming to work at Microbuyer now from a talent perspective and from a from a mission alignment perspective? What does it look like? I am so proud of our team. Like I told you, I speak a bunch of languages, but I am not good at their jobs. My job at the company was to, when we were smaller, be the second best at everything, except, you know, some stuff I just had to do. And then to fall through the ranks with every single hire, to get down to four to five to six. And it's a joke with them now. <laughs> They'll tell me, oh, you know, you're not acting like number four. Remind me to delegate. Or yeah, no, no, you need to step out of this conversation because you're number six now. Your vote doesn't count, which is good. That means I'm doing it right. And like you said, inviting the right talent in and they're finding their space here. One of the w- things that made it easy to attract really stellar, I'm so impressed with our Cody's, is I get to say, hey, you can use your machine learning tech techniques and your data science and your software engineering, not for adware. Come leverage your same skills, but also learn about biology. Get really close to our robots and our bacteria and use the same skills, but maybe to save the planet. So that's been a really good and compelling pitch for our Cody's. For our Benchies, the chemists and the biologists, I think that they relish the chance to do something different. Some of them, my co-founder Maggie, I think one of the reasons she found the pitch come, you know, struggle with me was that in her graduate experience, she saw a lot of chemicals that were accessible in bacteria, but she couldn't work in those bacteria. She was in a chemistry lab and they said, we're looking at enzymes or we're looking at the function, but we it's a distraction to actually be able to study it in the locale that we were there. And so she always kind of regretted that. She still has a really soft spot for the stuff she did for her graduate thesis, but just there was not the tools to do it. And now she can do it. Now she has worked in so many bacteria and she has seen so much about bacteria and knowing that when she sees something interesting, we have the chance to actually turn it on. So I think for the benchies, the novelty of working for a place that says that all the cool stuff that you love, you actually might now have a different way to get at it. And I think that's the draw for the benchies. I wonder on the, on the benchies, it's really interesting. I wonder if studies have been done on what percentage of people going into the professional realm from chemistry, physics, geology, biology are petrochemically focused. I have to imagine biology is the lowest, but I don't know for sure. I think there's a bunch of environmental microbiology wrapped up in petroleum, in prospecting, and some in bioremediation. 
So in mining companies, the bacteria are really important. And for mine closures and, you know, cleaning up after themselves, bacteria are really important. So you find biologists and or microbiologists, let's not lump in all the jobs that you can get as a, aren't there bird wranglers at airports? Sure. <laughs> and I'm veterinarians and stuff. Those are all, bio, I, they're all biologists. If you, if you work with animals or plants in any capacity and you care about them, I'm going to call you a biologist. But for environmental microbiologists, it's interesting because we talk about petroleum like it's the dangerous other, and it is, but it started as biomass. It is all biomass. And it, it was, gener- it's uh, the kind of petroleum you get is really influenced by what ate what and how far along it got in the eating process. So bacteria are still involved in petroleum. Fascinating. Yeah, I guess, you know, I asked that question only in that you all are definitely providing a, I feel like a unique new way for people to apply their skill sets. Yeah, I think they like it. And the biz dev people haven't had to sell strains of bacteria before, really. <laughs> so they're coming, the, our busies are coming from different markets, from chemistry and from other biological pursuits and getting to now try a different pitch. And I think they're having fun. I think they're having fun. And my other co-founder, Jeff, he has two law degrees and an MBA. And so he provides another part of our ecosystem, which is keeping the company, you know, okay, you're doing all this cool stuff, but what stuff do we have to reinvent to get a company like this? And what stuff do we not have to reinvent? You just need a steady shorthand at the tiller. And he provides that too. He's a critical part of our ecosystem for that. And I first met Jeff when you all were raising your last round of funding, which MCJ is honored to be part of. Maybe share a little bit about the capitalization kind of history of the business and also what you see it look like going forward. So I was lucky to be admitted to what's now called Activate, but was then called Cyclotron Road and their cohort of entrepreneurs. And I used that non-dilutive funding to ensure that Maggie could afford to come co-found with me. And that's also how I met Jeff. And so that was roughly half a million dollars, not all in cash and all non-dilutive to provide the space to sort of test out the company and keep making some technical progress for two years without having to engage VC because VC is a runway that you get on. It starts to be a treadmill and you have timelines. And so Cyclotron Road or Activate was very proud of their ability to give technical founders. So you had to be a technical person to be eligible. The runway to try things and then to be able to gracefully say, oh, this isn't going to work. Either it doesn't work for me to be an entrepreneur or we tried the idea. We didn't go deeply into debt to do it or and it's not going to work. So that was a really cool experience because I thought I was going to be a government scientist when I couldn't do this inside the government for reasons that aren't worth getting into, this was, I thought it was over. I thought I was not going to be able to do this or tilt at this windmill anymore and Activate offered me a way to keep going. So I'm really grateful for that. Without Activate, we would not be here. And then we were able to raise a seed round in 2019 and the leads were Bioeconomy Capital, which is a, an outfit that invests in platform biotechnology. They say, we're not going to do that silo thing. We're going to try and get at a bunch of stuff because we're running out of time. So the partners are Webring and Rob Carlson, and they are deep thinkers about bioeconomy and the climate. And also Azola Ventures, at the time, Prime Impact Fund was the name of the fund that invested. And they are really also really great fund to follow because they have a pretty unique vision and structure that allows them to have long views 
of climate strong companies where they aim to be catalytic capital. They say we invest in stuff that the regular VCs are not, they're not there yet. But if we come in and be catalytic, they might be willing to take a shot at it. I think all three GPs of Azola have been on the pod in the past, actually. So anyone who wants to get up to speed on Azola, go back to our archive for sure. They are amazing and they are strong in their climate commitment and they model it their investments before they make them. They, they don't just jump in. So really happy to have them on board. And they, the Bioeconomy Capital and Prime Impact Fund led our seed round. And we also attracted a house out of Berkeley and some angels. And we ran on that for until COVID hit. <laughs> and when COVID hit, we did not have enough money to move out of the free laboratory space we were in when that space became very restricted for appropriate reasons. And so we had a seed extension fund at a slight upvaluation where we attracted new funding from through the network from a couple new funders, smaller amounts, but really, really impactful in keeping the company going and getting our own space that we could start to grow into. Just wild experience for me as a baby CEO to now have to kind of fit up a building. And Jeff was really instrumental in that. And we got a lot of help, but at that, we were still only seven people. So we were seven people from 2019 to February of this year. (laughs) And February of this year is when we started closing the A round, which was led by lower carbon capital with real strong follows from Safar Investments. Impact Science Ventures, the LOSA Group, Earthshot Ventures, my climate journeys in there. I think we're getting everybody on our website, but all funds that are really, really, really invested in making a difference and who are intrigued by the new possibilities we are bringing and who have all been really, really helpful within their skill sets and strengths and networks of making sure that we are working. And so, yeah, now we are 25 people. (laughs) And uh, yeah, no, I'm really proud of the culture that my staff are maintaining, that they are really proud of the culture and that idea that we are peers in an ecosystem and we need to respect and cross train a little, not to replace each other, but so we really understand the value each other are bringing to the efforts and so we can foster communication between them. So I'm really, really proud of the staff as as we grow. We're picking and getting good people who really want to make an impact and respect each other. Like our culture is absolutely mutual respect. And I'm proud of it because I think what I've learned and what I'm seeing is that once you get past 15, 20 people, your culture's kind of set. It's a garden that I tried to fertilize, tried to shape and prune a little bit. And now I have to let it grow. And so far, so good. That's awesome. And you've kind of given some shout outs along the way of where you need help from people who are listening, who might have contributions to make this, that, and the other. If there's anything else to add there, please do. If not, I want to hear your take on what you think the next 10 years looks like, not just for microbiar, but for for the incumbent biotechnology, for the petrochemical space. Like, where's this all going? Oh, I mean, be fair to me. I've had my head down <laughs> doing very specific CEO stuff. And now I am coming up to start to take a breather and start to write the op-ed pieces. <laughs> established microbiome as a thought leader in the space. What I've always hoped for is that we start to all get on board with a vision that lets us realize circular bioeconomies within our houses, within our cities, and then within our states, where we start to embrace some of the, it feels more stochastic, but still more biologically integrated ways of first looking. First, we have to acknowledge where biology is. 
outside in our backyard, but also in our lives and start to look and think about some of the choices we are making, where we can make those choices, like cotton over microfiber, (laughs) things like that. And then asking more questions, asking questions about the choices, our states and our, are we composting? When we remove things from landfills, we can capture the methane better because nobody is really capturing methane off of landfills. So if you're putting things that rot into landfills, like not separating out your recyclables, that is a source of methane emissions that we can, as just individuals of all sorts, we can separate our compost and our recyclables, our paper recyclables, so they don't end up in landfills rotting. And there has been a trend of that improving. And we, we can, that's a little thing we can all do to just change our culture a little bit and sort out our recycling better. Uh, the plastic recycling is that's a whole other episode of what's going wrong there, but pull out your paper, pull out your compost. And what I want, where I want the world to be in 10 years is whether or not the, all the technology has come online and we've reversed the curve, that we are all way more aware of how it works biologically that we're way more aware of the bacteria, we're way more aware of the sources of greenhouse gas in terms of biomass and working to channel them, build different infrastructure to get them not to rot. The big takeaway I have in talking to you is there is a dangerous linear way of thinking that is to say that technology innovation has gone from the biological to the chemical to the physics driven, right? You know, even in energy, right? You go from biomass to petroleum to nuclear fusion, right? Like who knows? And it's not that. It's a yes and to all of them. And continuing to innovate heavily on that biological layer is something that can't be ignored. We say ecosystem, and sometimes we don't reflect deeply on what that means. So an ecosystem is this planet. It's also each of our bodies. But when you're working in an ecosystem and you want to succeed or you want to shift it, you can't ignore any part of it. So Petroleum can have a place in our society. It can have a use, but we have to come into balance. We have to because we're kind of trapped on Earth. So it's an ecosystem that we can really damage and we have damaged. And we have to recognize that ecosystem runs on biology. And when we recognize that, we can start shifting it back. We can sustain the planet. We can still have the lifestyles and the materials we need. We do have to make an investment. We have to make smart investments. We have to pick the right risks because of all the other constraints we discussed. But it is possible. It is possible for us to sustain our entire planet and to build the things that we need to build and to actually have even more equity about where those resources are built I mean, where do we grow biomass? Where do we discard biomass? It's not just in the cities. It's not in Boston and Berkeley. We can distribute a new biomanufacturing future across the entire globe so that everybody has a motivation and a benefit from it. We can do this because we can't. We can. We just, we need to have the motivation. So microbiers trying to provide some of that flexibility and help feed some of these motivations and then broaden them. When we start to provide that flexibility and more things are possible, some of our bacteria can do more than one thing. So we can, you know, amortize some of our investments and get at many, many more things. This is the future. It has to be. We believe strongly in the bioeconomy and we're going to do everything we can, everything we can to bring it about. Sarah, I knew this was going to be an awesome conversation. You were amazing. I so appreciate you taking the time to join us. 
Thank you very much. And, and thank you to your audience for giving it a listen. I know biology sometimes, <laughs> you know, especially if people are much more battery chemical focused, the biology can seem like a distraction. But like we said, we're going to bring you around. We're going to bring you around. And remember, if you've given up on something that you think might have a biological, let me know. Let Cody know. He'll let me know. And we'll, we'll take a look. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.